Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, May 29th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... By Monday, every single business will have an opportunity to, to open, uh, obviously with guidelines and with restrictions. The state enters the last weekend of Governor Reeves' safer-at-home order. We look at what's next. Then, clinics and hospitals across Mississippi are seeing a reduction in elective procedures and care. We talk to the Medical Association about the impact of the pandemic on the state's health professionals. Plus, a closer look at the touted reformer tapped to clean up the Department of Corrections. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves' weeks-long safer-at-home order expires Monday. The series of executive orders which replaced a prior shelter-in-place order have gradually allowed businesses to reopen under specific health guidelines throughout the month of May. A new order, which Reeves is calling the Safe Return Order, takes effect Monday and allows all Mississippi businesses to open. During his daily press briefing yesterday, Reeves thanked the people of Mississippi for their cooperation. Again, I I do want to uh, thank the people of our state. We, uh, by and large, are seeing good compliance. It's not 100%. It needs to be 100%. And I want to uh, continue to encourage uh, my fellow Mississippians uh, to continue to be vigilant, to con- continue to be focused, continue to stay safe, continue to think about what is not only in your own self-interest, but also what is in the self-interest of your friends, your family, and your neighbors. The fact that we're able to reopen our economy uh, where by by Monday every single business will have an opportunity to to open uh, obviously with guidelines and with restrictions uh, does not mean that the threat of the virus is gone. Uh, in fact we continue to see new cases each day. Uh, we continue to see uh, new cases that are closer to 300 new cases a day rather than uh, uh, the, the 200 number where we have been for some period of time. All of us need to stay watchful, protect those around us. Personal responsibility and action is the only way to prevent this disease from taking more and more lives unnecessarily in Mississippi. 
The safe return order comes as the state nears 700 COVID-19-related deaths. Between April 27th and May 27th, cases of COVID-19 have more than doubled, while deaths have nearly tripled. As businesses reopen and social gatherings become more prevalent, Dreves emphasizes the need for Mississippians to continue exercising personal discernment and caution. The single most important thing in protecting Mississippi from this virus is for individuals to exhibit personal responsibility, uh, for individuals to wear masks, for individuals to ensure that they are socially distancing. Um, And if you are attending some of these gatherings, uh, you're making a personal decision to attend them. Uh, There's some things that government just can't stop. And and the fact is that uh, we have laid out guidelines. We have we have tried to uh, exhibit through numerous executive orders. Um, we, we don't really fundamentally believe that, that government through executive orders uh, can do uh, a whole lot to, to make the lives of people better, but we've been trying to um, make sure that we uh, alert and alarm our fellow Mississippians to the risk that exists. And, and, and that's, I can say that in no uncertain terms. If you go to uh, a social gathering that has 100 or 200 or 300 people at it, the risks are going to be higher than if you, stay, if you choose personally to stay in your home. Now, I don't believe that I, as governor, uh, have the ability to order people to stay in their homes for months and months and months on end. But you as an individual certainly have the right and to, to make good decisions and to limit the amount of risk that you put yourself under. Reeves also says the executive orders, which provide specific health guidelines, are as enforceable as state laws. When asked about how these measures will be enforced, Reeves indicated it must be a balance between local law enforcement and personal responsibility. Local law enforcement has the ability uh, to enforce all state laws, and these executive orders do, in fact, carry the weight of state law. And so we've got, for instance, I know because um, I talk to uh, law enforcement all the time, I know that you've got, for instance, you've got uh, sheriffs on the Mississippi Gulf Coast who are uh, patrolling the beaches and making sure that if they see a group gathered up much larger than is uh, allowed under the order that they break them up, they send them home. The same can be said for uh, some parties that are being had in counties where they shouldn't be being had. Um, and so uh, local law enforcement can do it. But the, the best enforcement of any statute that we have is individuals in our state uh, enforcing it themselves. The safe return order goes into effect Monday, June 1st at 8 a.m. Coming up, clinics and hospitals across Mississippi are seeking a reduction in elective procedures and care. We talked to the Medical Association about the impact of the pandemic on the state's health professionals. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. Or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Hospital Association and Mississippi State Medical Association are encouraging patients to seek care in the state's clinics and hospitals, especially Mississippians who have chronic illnesses or need emergency care. Clinics and hospitals throughout the state have experienced steep declines in outpatient visits during the COVID-19 pandemic, with many Mississippians delaying or avoiding medical treatment, a potentially dangerous choice, according to Dr. Clay Hayes, president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. He joins us to discuss the Prepare to Care campaign aimed at informing Mississippians about their range of safe options for seeking medical treatment. We just want to make sure that the the people of Mississippi know that we are doing everything we can to make sure they get the care that they need. You know, I, I know a lot of people have been afraid to go to the hospital or to, to clinics for fear that they might get the COVID-19 uh, virus. And, and um, you know, a lot of people... We already have concerns that a lot of people may be uh, doing themselves more harm than good. And so we just want to make sure people know it's safe to come to the hospital and to the offices um, if they need to. Um, that's the main thing. Now, for the last several months, many doctors are doing, were doing telehealth uh, appointments. What's changed that it's now safe for people to go to a hospital or clinic? So, you know, we're still doing telemedicine. Uh, matter of fact, I'm a, a private practicing cardiologist, and we did a telemedicine for a lot of visits to, today. Uh, and so, you know, for people that just routine care, checkups and things, just need refills on their medicines or just to check in, we're still doing those telemedicine visits. And, and for people that live a far distance, they, they actually like it. But for other people that are symptomatic, we have set up the process where it's safe for people to come in. We check their temperature when they come in, give them a mask, uh, do social distancing in the waiting room so we don't have a lot of people crowded in there. Obviously, everybody's washing their hands and using gloves. So it's, it's a lot safer for people to come in. We've learned how to really take care of patients. And the same thing for the uh, elective surgeries, you know, people that have you know, a, a bad back or need, need difficulty and they just need some help, we, we figure out a way to, to help those people. And then the last thing for people that have chronic disease like diabetes that need to get their blood sugar checked, lab work, et cetera, we want to make sure that they're getting the care that they need. So that's, it's, we're, we're slowly uh, going back to a more normal state, although we still think that there is a role for telemedicine to play. Is the decision to return to some sense of normalcy, a decision of the Mississippi State Medical Association, Hospital Association, or does it come from the governor? Well, I think it comes from all three. We actually uh, serve as the chair for the governor's advisory uh, medical team, and we had a meeting where we had uh, Dr. Dobbs from the health department, uh, members of the governor's staff uh, from State Medical Association, and also from the hospital association, we all want to work together as a team. And, you know, our main goal is the safety of, of Mississippians. And, you know, we've got to take care of folks no matter what, whether there's a COVID pandemic or not. We've got to take care of everybody. And that's our goal. Hospitals are losing money. We just heard at UMMC that 250 employees have been laid off. Uh, Dr. Luann Woodward says that $1 million a day has been lost in elective procedures. Uh how does that play a part, or does that play a part, the finances and the severe loss of revenue for that hospital in particular because it represents the state? And then let's talk about the more rural hospitals. 
Well, I think hospitals all over the country, I mean, it's not just the UMC. I mean, you, places as big as the Mayo Clinic, they're, they're losing a billion dollars this year. Uh, that's their expectations, and they're having to lay off uh, uh, staff all over the country. And uh, it has to do a lot, I will say, with the elective procedures that, that people are not or haven't been doing. Now we're starting to see those happen again. And, I mean, you know, you, you got to – if you don't, it's a business. If you if you don't uh, generate revenue, you can't have the staff. I can't afford the staff, and um, and that's that's a problem all over the country. But I think that's one of the you know things that we want to express to people that is safe for people to come in, uh, and that we have flattened the curve. You know, the initial concern was is that there was going to be this huge uh, crisis where we weren't going to have enough beds and enough ventilators and enough medicine and et cetera, but because of the of the the safety measures that people have followed, like the staying at home and uh, social distancing, we haven't seen that big surge, and so we do have capacity to take care of folks. If that were to change, because cases are still going up and down, uh, sure. So, if it were to change, if there was a surge in cases all of a sudden, would you? pull back this campaign and recommend that people hold off? Well, we look at that. I mean, you know, medicine is a constantly uh, evolving thing. It's just like when you look at patients every day. That's why you check on them. Uh, and we monitor the uh, the data, and we learn. Um, and if we started to see a, a rise in cases and, uh, say, the number of people having to come to the hospital, yeah, we would probably throttle back. Not to say that we would go all the way back to where we started from with hardly any cases in the hospital. That's, you know, we thought, well, that's maybe a little bit much. Maybe if we just sort of moderate back, we could handle, you know, the influx coming in. As The other thing is people will start developing immunity. Um, you know, before we had no immunity, and now we're starting to develop immunity in the community, and so we'll see how that, that affects the cases. Small hospitals in the state were already facing loss of revenue and other challenges pre-pandemic. Sure. What is the status of those? Are, are we looking at more closures of those hospitals? How can they rebound? Well, we hope not. Uh, obviously, the uh, federal government has been trying to help uh, these hospitals and businesses with the different grants and loans. I know the state recently uh, received over a billion dollars, and they're trying to figure out what to do to help those hospitals too. So that is definitely on our mind because um, we need those hospitals to, to help those communities. So, uh, yes, we're definitely looking at that. Dr. Clay Hayes is the president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. Thank you so much, Dr. Hayes. Well, thank you. Coming up, a closer look at the touted reformer tapped to clean up the Department of Corrections. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org.
This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. After a month-long national search, Governor Tate Reeves has tapped former Angola State Prison Warden Burl Kane to lead the reform efforts within the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Reeves says he chose Kane based on his record of reform at the Louisiana prison. Kane left his position at Angola Prison in 2015 amid accusations of side business dealings, misspent funds, and wrongful use of inmate labor. Kane says the allegations are baseless. Those allegations were unfounded, that there was uh, no crimes committed. And so what we have to do is avoid the hint of impropriety. We will continue to do that. And I've done that throughout my career. Maya Lau and Gordon Russell were investigative reporters with The Advocate during Kane's later years at Angola. They share their insight on the curious duality of Burl Kane and the narrative of Kane as a pioneer in prison reform. It's a narrative that's part myth and there's some truth to it. But in reality, a lot of the violence reduction occurred before uh, Burl Kane became warden there. I mean, he didn't become warden until 1995. And, uh, John Whitley was the warden from 1990 until 1995. Um, a couple, Whitley and a, another prior warden, Ross Maggio, were credited with a lot of the changes that uh, took place over the previous couple of decades. So uh, I think you could say that Burl Kane presided over a relatively peaceful time at Angola, but I think that a lot of the worst of the violence had been curbed before he got there. And there was a longstanding federal consent decree and there was a lot of crazy practices back in the seventies and so forth. I mean, they had inmates carrying guns who were in charge of security and it was really kind of a, it was a pretty, pretty awful place. Um, and a lot of that had been cleaned up before Burl Kane got there. And I think there's no question that Burl Kane implemented a lot of programs that were lauded in the corrections community nationally, you know, programs, uh, vocational programs, and also his prison ministry programs that got, you know, prisoners to, um, you know, some of them earned degrees from it and kind of gave them purpose and made them, you know, more happy and um, productive. And that, you know, is, is something that he is noted for. Um, I think the question is whether he alone is responsible for a dramatic drop in violence. And as Gordon was saying, um, you know, consent decrees had been in place and there had, it had taken decades to bring down the violence um, that had gone on there before. So that, that trend was already, you know, that it was already on the downtrend by the time that Kane got there. And I think as we found in our reporting, there was a lot of myth-making by Kane. Um, a lot of things that he kind of would exaggerate and kind of make it seem like he, you know, single-handedly did this. I mean, he's very, he's a charming guy um, and a lot of fun to talk to. And he definitely is charismatic and um, but a lot of people here used to compare him to, to Boss Hogg, the character from from Dukes of Hazard. If anyone's a Dukes of Hazard fan out there, but um, he, you know, he has uh, Jimmy LeBlanc, the correction secretary, would describe him as entrepreneurial, which is probably a good word for him. But he was always kind of looking for a way to um, monetize inmate labor and monetize his position. And I think, you know. Burl Kane would say he was doing that to save money for the prison system. But oftentimes there was a sort of a side door for him where he was getting a consulting contract on the side or a commission 
And that was the part that was a little bit more uh, troublesome. Yeah. And I think there's always been that duality to him of like that he, he did do a lot of good work. And I think people, you know, wanted to see him kept in place because gee, you know, he'd uh, supported all these rehabilitation programs. And yet um, there was always this sort of entrepreneurial side deal part to him that, you know, he, um, you know, he would kind of find these opportunities here and there to, uh, you know, extract money from someone. Um, yeah, I think it's it's that duality to Burl Kane that's always been interesting that, you know, it's not just, oh, he's, you know, linked to some potentially shady activity. It's that he... Um, he is he is charming and he has been effective in many ways. And, and to add on that, I would agree with everything Maya said. He's he's not a guy who sits on his hands. I mean, he is. I mean, Jimmy LeBlanc, I remember, also described him as the most creative person he's ever met. But he was always thinking he was always dreaming stuff up. He wasn't just a guy who said, let's lock up the inmates and, you know, keep this place secure. He was always thinking about how can we do something different, you know, and, and that led to some some probably really good programs, maybe some of the prison ministry programs and so forth, and also probably led him down some kind of more unseemly paths. Maya Lau and Gordon Russell both wrote for The Advocate when Burl Kane, part of his time at Angola, and then when he resigned. So I thank you both so much for being with us. Thanks, Thanks for having, for having me. us. The next official step in Kane's confirmation process is a hearing with the Senate's Corrections Committee. Democrat Juan Barnett of Heidelberg chairs that committee. He tells our Desiree Frazier he's satisfied with the governor's selection as the process moves forward. You know, it's a process that we have to go through. You know, we have to, of course, have a background check and all that. But so far, I feel good with the pick, and that's because the governor didn't decide this pick um on his own. He selected a group of individuals who he trusted to uh, make sure that we found the right person to put in place to um, run our Department of Corrections. And those individuals submitted to him a short list of three names of individuals that they thought would be um, excellent in, in doing that job. And then the governor had the decision to choose from one of those three. So I'm just trusting those individuals. Uh, and several of them I know I'm well, and I think that that they made a good decision. Are you concerned about the baggage that he brings from his former position uh, and and, and allegations that were found to be proven, but he wasn't charged? Well, Ms. Desiree, it's like anything else, you know. There's always going to be allegations, and there's always going to be something, you know, if we if anybody wanted to find anything about anybody, if they look deep enough, then I'm sure they can find exactly what what they was looking at. And and I'm not trying to find fault why we shouldn't. I'm trying to find reasons why we should because, you know, we got the eyes of America um, at one point uh, before this COVID-19 virus uh, was all focused on Mississippi and our prisons. And so I'm just trying to find um, some good to so that moving forward, Mississippi can become the next model prison like Angola did. 
Would not that be all the more reason to find someone who did not have the baggage so that when decisions are made and procedures put in place, that there wouldn't be any hint or taint of potential impropriety? Well, you, you, you keep going back to the baggage and, and those things, but I read an article there in one of the papers there um, from Louisiana, and it said that there were three, three state agencies that had investigated Mr. Mr. Kane and None of them found any wrongdoing. So, you know, I, I just think that if there was anything that he had done wrong and there could have been charges, but I think that they would have brought the charges on him. Um, but again, he ran this place for 21 years, and that's almost unheard of for anyone to stay at a prison as a warden for that, for that length of time. He has to be confirmed by the Senate, correct? That's correct. What is that process? Well, um, we would get a report back from Peer um, that I would give to all of the committee members that serve on that committee. Uh, we would have Mr. Kane in, uh, or he can uh, be answered questions by those senators that serve on that committee. And based upon how they feel about it then, you know, they can either um, agree to move his confirmation out of committee and onto the Senate floor or kill it in the committee. Do you have any sense of which way that might go at this point? I don't. I've just been doing, you know, my own gathering, and, 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 and uh, I will be meeting with my committee members at some point. And, uh, we'll go from there. We'll probably have a hearing um, from some of those individuals who was chosen to want to be on that task force and have them to come in and and also give input as to why um, Mr. Kane was one of the finalists. Democrat Juan Barnett is chair of the Senate Corrections Committee. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.